Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. So we've been teaching law school through the same method since the 1870s, when Christopher Columbus Langdell invented the case method. Today's world is so different than the pre-1870s internet world. My guest today, Professor Stephanie McMahon of the University of Cincinnati, recognizes the significant changes in what it means to be a lawyer and what it means to learn the law in the 21st century. She advocates some really thoughtful changes for today's law schools, both for law students and law faculty. Her arguments are compelling, and during our short conversation, she's convinced me to rethink the way I advise my own law students. Here's my conversation with Professor Stephanie McMahon. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I, I know that you're given a lot of thought about our subject today, but it's also a subject that's very near and dear to me. And I think it's important for both students and professors and even practitioners to understand how teaching the law is different. I mean, we base our law on the Socratic method, the Langdellian method, and it dates back before the internet, probably. Definitely. I'm not gonna say before the printing press, but it does date back before the internet. But yet I've noticed that we haven't really changed the way we teach. And I think it's important to rethink curricular decisions and both, you know, globally and internally within each class. And so I, I want to talk to you a little bit and get your thoughts on what suggestions you have for curricular reform. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is definitely a topic I care about greatly. Uh, I'm a tax professor who loves focusing as a transactional attorney, trying to get students to understand what it means to be a transactional attorney. And I think that there needs to be both curricular reform overall, but also how we think about our classes, need to prepare students just to make choices that I don't think they really needed to make back in 1870 when Harvard adopted the Langdellian model, right? We have the same model for well over 100 years the laws changed the way students need to see that law before they enter practice, I think is just, it's fundamentally different. So let, let's be, let's get into the specifics here. For example, when I went to law school, you only learned how to think like a lawyer. You spent three years how, learning how to think like a lawyer and then clinics started popping up and now we have clinics, we have externships, but why is it that we need to change kind of how we teach our classes or what we offer when we are now giving students externships and clinics and that kind of thing? Because for, there's two reasons I would say. First, most of those extra experiences are not until a student's second or third year. So their first year, when they're making the choices of what they're going to try to do as a summer associate that first summer, what courses to enroll in, and their second year, they don't know, for many of them, do not know what kind of jobs are available, what skill sets are needed for both. So in the first year, students really need to be exposed to the practice of law. And legal research and writing, I think, does a tremendous job but this needs to be throughout the curriculum. So everywhere students go, they're seeing what their careers could be so that they can make wise choices. I also think that students often do better when they can connect the doctrinal law they're learning with practical applications. So just helping students learn the material is more effective if we're actually showing them how they're going to use it. 
right? It, one of the things that I learned when I first started, I, I took this um, course design course through the University of Cincinnati, and they were telling me that students learn by making a web of ideas and to connect different pieces helps them learn. One of those webs is just the one of those strings is the practical application. So every class, every doctrinal class needs to think of how students are going to use the law that they're learning. So I know you teach tax, which is an upper level class, but let's talk about it in practical ways. How would you redesign a 1L class? You could pick any topic. <laughs> well, so my my favorite 1L class that I had, Professor Lessig loved him, oh. uh, but it did not have as much of a practical element as I would like. And that so, was a tour that was what he teaches towards, I believe. Is that correct? No, he, con- he taught for contracts? me. Contracts. Oh, contracts. Okay, I'm wrong. I, I, I read his book, but I thought. Well, and, and, you know, professors love to change. So who knows what it was. I I think I'm wrong, but anyway, all right. So he teaches contracts. So, or at least he did. And at a period of time, that's enough in the past that we don't need to date that year. So I would change the course. I remember learning a lot about the peppercorn. When I practice law, I never discussed the peppercorn. And I think students need to understand consideration but there's a certain, and I'm a legal historian by training. I have my PhD in history. I love this stuff. But for first year students, I think instead of focusing on the history per se, to such an extent, we need to know the evolution, but also the current and future, what it's going to be. So I would love the idea of in a contracts course, for example, using real contracts, not all of it. Quite frankly, not even half of it should be the common law. Students are getting common law and a lot of other courses. If only in contracts, students are really focused on this is how you draft and this is how you respond. And this is how you use law as a preventative measure so that you never get to a court. What is required for a contract to never see inside of a courtroom? And what do you have to do to get there? It's just a different way. And I can tell you, my students don't like it when I make them work in groups, adding more group experiences, more practical problems so that they're seeing the law on a weekly basis as a problem solving tool. So, you know, it's interesting. I have a little pushback for you, but I want to first say. Um, and I, I, I'm now, I teach contracts and this semester I'm teaching something called the problem-based learning method, which is basically something they do in medical school. And what it requires is we put students in groups of five. We each, we give each student a role. Someone's the reporter, someone's the timekeeper, and they're getting real life problems. I mean, real life problems, having said that, I just had a problem with Tom Shady instead of Tom Brady, but rather than me lecturing, because I think another problem is attention span. You know, I think you have a big, I I think you highlight the bigger problem, which is it's not law. The practice of law is not as cerebral as it used to be, especially in transactional areas. But so I am doing the problem method. I've had my first class. It's early in the semester. The other thing that I think you say, which is super important is, and I say this to my students, the entire contracts course is about how to get out of a contract. Everything is about people made it to the courtroom and they want out. So you're absolutely right that really we would behoove 
students to help behoove their clients how to keep them out of court because everything is about a defense. But the pushback I'm going to give you on this is the bar exam because the bar exam does test kind of the application of the contracts in terms of where it went wrong. Like even it could be assent, it could be, you know, misunderstanding, it could be, you know, mental incapacity. Uh, okay. So first, I disagree that the law is less cerebral than it was before. I had to say it. Um, but that's only because I think that the type of thinking is a little more practical very early on. Okay. So I think that Yes, eventually you get to these great big ideas and concepts, just like we did 100 years ago. But in the short term, people need to have much more of a practical dollar and cents. How do we make it work? So it feels probably less liberal artsy than it would have a while ago because they need to go in being business people. But okay. I still think the same concepts, the same questions and problems are facing them. And we just need to give them different tools to be problem solvers, right? That's what lawyers have always been, society's problem solvers, and that's what we need to, to keep. Second, I think there's two things, right? We have Next Gen Bar, which is a great opportunity for them to continue changing what they've proposed because it does not go far enough in trying to assure students, all people going into the practice of law have a broad-based understanding of the different sources of law. The complete lack of administrative law on the bar exam, it's appalling, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's as though it were back in 1870 and there was never a progressive era. There was never an APA. It's just gone. But two, I think contracts professors have a choice on how they present the material. Even if they're trying to prepare them for the bar three years later after students have well forgotten it. But if you're going to, if you want to look at this is how people have blown up. How would you go about fixing it up front? So a different framing. So if you're going into this situation and you know that the issue is going to be misrepresentation, how would you go about ensuring that did not occur? How could you, again, make it preventative instead of the framing being litigation? It's what I, so I just wrote that down, preventative rather than reactive. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that that, I, you know, as you're saying this, I'm trying to think about how I can explain that. And really, it's just a matter of framing. Exactly. I think much of it is starting a class saying, I'm trying to prepare you to, or I'm, I'm preparing you to be a transactional attorney, even if you're not going to, you're going to, you're going to think in this class, how would you go in to solving problems before they start? How do you anticipate the problems? The contract law the bar is going to test is going to be all those problems that you're going to learn how to never see again. And then you go over to CIFPRO and, and you then get to litigate as though they went wrong. But for now, you're going to focus and reframe. And I think students would be very, or at least half of the students who are going to come out and be transactional lawyers would be very receptive to having something where the common law is still going to be there, but it's going to be there for a different purpose. So this is super interesting because what you're basically saying is that even though it's kind of the same results, rather than as a professor thinking about, I want to teach them to learn the law, I want to prepare them to practice the law. 
Yes. And I think that um, there was at least a generation of law professors, you know, it's a, literally a dying breed, <laughs> literally, but there is a generation that looked down on practice, that the whole idea was that was what your summer internships were. That was what the first year was for, a practice was for. So I don't know how you unwind that. I, I definitely, I, I've heard it in my own faculty meetings that this is uh, in some ways going to belittle the profession. And I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. So one of the reasons we value lawyers in our society is their ability to address problems. And one means is clearly litigation and it's one other means is the cerebral problem solving that yes, sometimes results in litigation, but it also results in preventative policymaking, lobbying, all sorts of other skills that we don't show students. So our students don't develop those abilities and are, some of them are not even aware of the need or the possibility. So what I've tried, although by no means successfully, is to get faculty to recognize our students may not have the same exposure as they did in 1870 for how the world works. Yeah. Some of, at the University of Cincinnati, many of my students are first generation lawyers. They've never been around the law. They, they are excited, but they don't really know what their options are. So we need to expose them to their options and to the tools to solving problems. And by making them a better equipped problem solver, we're actually just making it better, right? We're, we're not saying you don't have to have chosen one summer job and hope that one summer job gives you the skills you need. We're going to let you confront all of societal problems because we're going to show you the different ways of doing it. You know, and, and, and again, you know, this is such a, you know, I say global with respect to law school itself, because even with this idea of externships, which you know, I will be honest, I used to say, you know, that's basically an unpaid intern, you know, that benefits the firm. There is a benefit, particularly for first-gen law students, which we teach here too, to be exposed to the practice of law, which, you know, and I think that, so, so I guess what I'm saying is I now see that as another essential cog in the machine of learning. I, I agree. And I am a big supporter of externships because I think students they need to practice networking. They need to get out there and see different ways. But I also think medical schools in some ways do it better. You have a rotation in medical school in your residency through lots of different areas. You are going to see how different kinds of medicine is actually practiced and see patients with different problems. We have gotten we used to have no training except what you happen to, to find as a summer job. And now we do have clinics and externships, but it's still relatively limited. It is what you happen upon is the only thing you're going to be trained for or the only thing you're going to see. Right. I think putting in more of a problem solving, lawyering element in every course, in particular 1L courses, which is funny because I don't teach 1Ls, but putting it into all the 1L courses allows students to have a little bit of that medical school broader exposure, which I think can only help our students. 
I agree. I mean, there was the McCrae report, which came out in the 90s. Yeah. I don't know how much it's been embraced. So, all right. So, so podcast host prerogative, because I'm going to learn something now. When my students come to me and they're setting up their schedule for their 2.0 year, first semester and second semester of their 2.0 year, and they want to take an externship. And I will be honest, I say, no, you're here to learn the law that once you get out, you can only be exposed to a very small area. You should A, get the broadest area possible, and B, you should learn the law, particularly the law that's on the bar exam before you go out and lose the opportunity to have those classes. But what you're saying is maybe I'm not giving them the best advice. So what would you tell me to advise my students? Everything is a balance, right? Everything in moderation. So I think that sometimes for many students who don't have exposure to what it means to being a lawyer, I would say an externship earlier rather than later helps them figure out what in fact they want to do, where they want to choose their electives, what they want to focus on. So I would disagree and say, put the externships earlier, but only a limited amount, because I think you're exactly right. Students need doctrinal law. I personally do not think the bar exam courses are the threshold for the 2L year. If you're only taking a course for the bar exam, take it as close to the bar exam as possible. So I I knew I was not going to be a criminal lawyer from this before I walked in. Mm-hmm. to law school. So take criminal electives for the bar exam 3L year so that your 2L year can be figuring out what kind of law you want to do and what are the pretty universal entry-level courses for different disciplines. I've had many students who have not taken federal income tax until their 3L year because their 2L year was all taking bar courses. And if they find out they like it, they don't have enough time to take a lot of different tax courses. They've lost that option because we're taxes. One of those things that's lockstep, a lot of environmental and patent law, a lot of things you need to take them in order. So the 2L year, if you have an inkling taking the first step allows you to see if you want to continue in that, that area. So you've totally revamped my recommendations. And that makes so much, I teach sales, which is article two, because we teach article two separate from contracts. The reason I say that is that article two is a third of the multi-state contracts questions, right? So it's important. And I do tell my students not to take sales until the spring semester of their 3L year. But to your point, why take evidence until you're the 3L year? Why take CrimPro investigation especially if you're not going to be a criminal lawyer, you should take the things then so that it can form you for your exactly. job. Exactly. We know, we know they're going to forget this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like how much do they retain from first year to three L year? I started including and my students, they actually don't complain about it in their um, evaluations, which has always shocked me, mm-hmm. but I make them do a practice problem before every class. They have to turn in an email or multi-choice to me. And I'm actually going to revamp it. So they have to do some more practical real world contract negotiations in Fed income tax. Uh-huh. So every class, because studies have shown that if students review material within 24 hours, the retention goes up like 60% simply by reviewing the material within 24 hours of, of learning it. So if you can get students to when they leave class, not to put it behind them, but to just go, let me think about that one more time. You've done them a huge service. And and this is why I'm like, if you ask for them in their two all year, 
it's definitely in the rearview mirror by the time right. of the bar. Right, right. All right, so we're going to tell students that they can expose themselves to externships, clinics in their 2L year, right? Of course. We're going to encourage 1L faculty to give more real-world problems and problem learning, which not only is important for them to see kind of how to reason through and work the law, but I think, too, the reality is that it's too easy now to zone out of class, that no one has quite the attention span that they used to. You know, so, I mean, I know it's on the students and the students are grownups, but it's even hard for me. You know, I mean, I don't bring my phone to class for that very reason. So, and, and there's also the myth that we paid much better attention than we probably did. I, yeah. I, I don't want to know from my <laughs> professor if I rolled my eyes and looked like I was doodling, which I doodled. I did. I doodled. I wonder what the art of doodling exists now because I did. I remember I used to make flowers. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so we're going to, we're going to encourage the faculty so that it's almost a holistic approach, right? There's, and we're going to encourage the administration to support all of these decisions. And Absolutely. So, and, and the way know. that I think the only way this will actually really happen, because I think faculty, we're scared of making change and we're relatively entrenched in what we've done is I really hope you can get the bar exam for the next gen bar to change the rules. I think if they would start instead of the fact that they're all of their testing material for the doctrinal is the pretty much the same as it was historically yeah. if they started reframing it and linked the specific skills to certain doctrinal areas it would be forced but it could cause faculty to rethink what they do so i think the next gen bar needs to and i think the aba needs to speak up about law schools accreditation right i think they need to say it is insufficient to expect students to learn about their potential career options just from, you know, your professional development, right. hiring, whatever different law schools call their recruiting arm. It needs to be faculty involved. Yeah. You know, and as you're saying, and I'm thinking about, you know, so we have the number one environmental law school program in the country here at Pace. And I would say a third of the law students come here to be environmental lawyers and maybe 20% leave being environmental lawyers because they realize yeah. there's other things out there. So that's a good example of what you're suggesting. And the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I'm an old dog and I have a new trick, which is doing this problem-based learning. And truthfully, faculty, like it's kind of invigorating to change it up a little bit. Yes, it takes from your scholarship, what have you, but it really is invigorating. I think so, especially because quite frankly, just write an article about it, right? Start yeah. engaging in the world because you've learned something new. You can shed a light on how this can change. There's a lot of people talking about how to best reach courses. And traditionally, I was um, a keynote speaker at Emory's Transactional Law Forum and most of the academics that were there were in skills-based courses hmm. or clinics, as opposed to being in doctrinal courses. So I think trying to get doctrinal people to join in the dialogue of how to use and use skills in doctrinal courses, which your problem method is a skills-based opportunity. I would then urge you, quite frankly, to have them do some writing because the more they write, the more it gets locked into their heads. But right. Otherwise, I think that you're doing everything that we want them to do and want all 1L professors to do. Right. I think that's point well taken. This has really been interesting. Anything else you'd want to add to the conversation? Uh, I, I, no, I actually think this is funny because you've been extremely kind, allowing me just to espouse my views. And 
And I, I wish, I hope that people respond, let me know whether and what they're doing. Um, I wrote an article that was published by the Pace Law Review on curricular reform. And yeah. it's something where I hope to stay involved in the discussions on how we can try to get the, the law schools throughout the country to really think about these issues. Well, in just this short time together, you've already got me thinking about things I'm going to change and how I'm going to look at this and how I'm going to advise students. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank and you. we will put your, as we always do, your contact information in the liner notes. And please feel free to reach out to Professor McMahon if you're a student about what you want to see more in law school and if you're a faculty sharing of ideas. So thank you, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout. <laughs>